At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 11, The Berlin Airlift, Part 2. So in our last segment, we covered the political origins of the Berlin blockade and some of Berlin's history leading up to that point. In this segment, we will be covering the actual airlift itself, the political events around the airlift, what was happening in the city during this time, and how the Berlin airlift politically helped to shape Europe and the early to mid-Cold War. If you remember from last time we spoke, the Soviets had just begun their siege of the western sector of the city. The American commandant in Berlin, Colonel Frank Howley, announced to the citizens of Berlin, quote, This much I know. The American people will not stand by and allow the German people to starve, close quote. Addressing the Soviets, he said, quote, We have heard a lot about your military intentions. Well, this is all I have to say on the subject. If you do try and come into our sector, you better be prepared. We are ready for you, close quote. Despite this rhetoric, the Americans were worried not knowing if the Soviets would allow planes to fly into the city or if they would be shot down. Testing the situation, Clay sent a flight of C-47s into the city. The primary British airfield in Berlin was Gatkow, whereas the primary airfield in the American sector was Tempelhof in south-central Berlin. Ironically, 40 years earlier, in 1909, Orville Wright had demonstrated his Wright flyer there to the German military breaking an altitude record and carrying the first German woman airplane passenger aloft. By the mid-1930s, it was one of the biggest airports in the world, boasting a hotel, shops, and a rooftop diner where you could watch planes take off and land. Because of its location, the field was not used for military use in either of the world wars, except for a few emergency landings. Therefore, it was not a priority target for the Allies in World War II and only saw little damage during the war. The airport, however, was a grass field as the German Civilian Aviation Authority preferred grass landings. Clay's test flight of C-47s landed without incident and returned to the American base in Frankfurt. Western reaction to the Soviet declarations cutting off the city was swift. Special planes were assigned to fly huge wooden crates into the city. The crews had no idea what was in the crates, but were issued hand grenades in order to blow themselves up if they were forced to land in East Germany. It turned out that these crates contained the new West German marks. The next morning, Berliners learned that the Allies would be introducing a new currency into the city to compete with the new Soviet currency and their morning newspapers. But beyond tough talk and the introduction of the new currency, the Americans had only two plans to deal with the Soviet blockade. Plan A was to take an armored convoy into the city. Clay wanted to break the blockade by sending a regiment supported by artillery, combat engineers, and tanks along the German Autobahn through East Germany into Berlin. The engineers would bring bridging equipment to cross the Elba in case the Soviets blew the bridges. When the Pentagon reviewed the plan, they gave a very bleak assessment. 
Even if Clay could organize the proper supplies, it was a 125-mile distance to cover with one bridge to cross every three miles, meaning even a weak defensive force could slow his advance. Even if he got into Berlin, it's doubtful he would have been able to keep the route open. In all reality, the Soviet forces in East Germany would have made quick work of his single combat regiment and would be driving down the Champs-Élysées in a few weeks' time. When Clay approached the British military governor, Sir Brian Robertson, about Plan A, Robertson thought Clay was mad and told him that that the British government would not consent to such a plan and argued instead for Plan B. Plan B was an airlift. The Allies knew that the air corridors remained open, but they calculated that Western Berlin would need at least 4,500 tons of supplies a day, and the Allies had never attempted an operation that large. The only comparable operation was the, quote, hump during World War II when American aircraft flew supplies across the Himalayas from India to supply the Chinese against the Japanese. Berlin would need almost twice as much tonnage as that operation at its peak. Lord Mayor Reuter agreed that the prospects of supplying the city by air seemed dim, but he was determined that the city would not fall to the Soviets and that Berliners would make the necessary sacrifices to survive. Many in the U.S. military and the State Department figured that maybe they could supply the garrison, but the city would starve in the long run, and the Allies would have to evacuate. The next day, the Joint Chiefs of Staff met, and they all agreed that they had three basic options. Option A was to surrender the city to the Soviets, the most favored. Sure, the United States would lose face, but World War III would be prevented, as would the destruction of the Berlin garrison. B, attempt to stay and achieve a diplomatic solution. The Americans had very little leverage and would be kicking the proverbial can down the road in this option. Or C, prepare to wage war on a massive scale against the Soviet Union. The Allies lacked the strength to conventionally battle Moscow, though. The U.S. did have 136,000 troops in West Germany, but these forces were tied up with occupation duties and the single battle-ready division only had 12 tanks. Indeed, following the U.S. mass demobilization from 1945 to 1946, the U.S. only had 552,000 men in the army. The British army had 103,426 in Germany, and France had just 75,000, with many of its troops still fighting in Indochina. The air situation wasn't much better. In 1945, the U.S. Army Air Corps could muster 64,000 planes. By 1947, the new U.S. Air Force contained just 1,500 aircraft. In Europe, the U.S. had just 75 World War II P-47 Thunderbolts. The British had 36 light bombers and 96 fighters. The French had virtually no air power as their air force was again committed to fighting in Indochina. The Soviets, in contrast, had 18 battle-hardened, heavy mechanized divisions backed up by tank armies in East Germany of roughly a million men backed by thousands of self-propelled guns, with a reserve force of another 3 million in Eastern Europe. The Soviet Air Force operated hundreds of bombers and fighters throughout an extensive network of airfields in Eastern Europe. Soviet forces did, however, have issues around discipline and a shortage of supply trucks. Clay's proposal to take a convoy into the city, or the, quote, shoot our way in plan, close quote, was deemed borderline crazy and dismissed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. No one even mentioned the airlift option in the Joint Chiefs of Staff meeting. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided to convince the president to withdraw from the city and to coordinate with the British on the evacuation plans. The British Foreign Secretary Bevan announced the Americans, though, that under no circumstances would Great Britain abandon the city to the Soviets without a fight. The news came as a shock to the U.S. General Wiederman, 
who was in London specifically to coordinate with the British on the evacuation of the city. Bevan, Foreign Secretary of the British Labour Party under Attlee, who we'll be looking at in a later episode, hated Stalin and the Soviets as much as he hated the Nazis. The British military, unlike the Americans, believed a massive airlift could work, and the British military general, Robertson, wired London for additional planes to get started. Although dubious about the plan, Clay lent his support by requisitioning as many American planes as he could find. When the Joint Chiefs of Staff attempted to suggest to Truman that the Allies abandon the city, Truman cut them off mid-sentence. Quote, there is no discussion on that point. We stay in Berlin, period. Close quotation. When General Royal pointed out that this might lead to war, Truman replied, quote, We will deal with that situation as it develops, but the essential position is that we stay in Berlin by terms of agreement and that the Russians have no right to get us out, either by direct or indirect pressure. However, to everyone's relief, Truman rejected Clay's armored convoy plan. Truman also rejected a retaliatory plan of closing the Panama Canal to Soviet shipping. Without it being brought up, Truman decided that the airlift was the best solution and ordered its expansion until a diplomatic solution could be worked out. Truman did, however, transfer 60 B-29s to Britain, a veiled threat against the Soviets, to use atomic weapons. These bombers were not retrofitted to carry atomic bombs, but Stalin didn't know that, nor did he know that the U.S. only had roughly a dozen bombs. But the threat was there to balance off the huge conventional forces of the Soviet Union. The airlift operation became known as Operation Vittles. Eventually, Major General William Turner, who had directed the successful hump operation, was brought in to take Operation Vittles to a new level. The Allies had access to three air corridors. Two were used for flying into the city from the north and the south, with a central corridor used by planes leaving the city. Air traffic control centers located in West Berlin and West Germany had complete authority over all overall air routes. These centers controlled the rate of flow from takeoffs to landings, the traffic patterns in and out of Berlin, and all operational procedures. Under ideal conditions, one plane was taking off and landing every three minutes. As the airlift proceeded, the Americans broke the operation up into three groups. Group A flew out of Visbiden and was composed of C-47s. Group B, also composed of C-47s, flew out of Frankfurt. Group C flew out of Frankfurt as well, but was made up of the larger C-54s. Each trip to Berlin took about eight hours, including time on the ground in the city, and each group flew three missions a day. Most pilots would fly two missions on a 16-hour stretch and then have 16 hours off. Once the cargo reached Berlin, it was unloaded by local Berliners. Over 200 were employed or overseen by Americans within the first week of operations. One of the biggest challenges faced by the airlift was finding enough pilots. Many pilots were reassigned to fly missions. Those who couldn't be reassigned were even flying missions on their off hours. Even General LeMay himself made several flights into the city hauling supplies. The other major challenge faced by the airlift was lack of spare parts and experienced mechanics to keep the planes flying. There was a shortage of windshield wipers, uh, engine parts, tires, and propellers. The mechanic issue was, was solved, however, by hiring former Luftwaffe mechanics. There were eventually more German mechanics assigned to each American squadron than there were actually even Americans. There was also the problem of fuel and runway damage. The demand for fuel was so great that the U.S. had to divert three tankers from their original destinations to Europe to meet the ever-growing thirst of the airlift. The runways were also in constant need of repair as the number of flights landing started to cause damage, especially from the larger C-54s. 
Runways were constantly being repaired and new strips were constructed, although building new strips was a challenge in themselves given lack of building material and heavy machinery. Some of the airlift's cargoes, though, were very odd. Most fruit brought into the city was dried to save weight. However, there was a weekly shipment of fresh bananas that were flown in for a child, Peter Booker, who suffered from a rare intestinal disorder that made digestion of everything else but bananas difficult. One of the other special foods and needs that uh, sparked a revolt amongst the American pilots was wine. The French garrison in Berlin required large quantities of red, red wine when U.S. personnel struggled to find even a bottle of Coke. When U.S. pilots discovered that they were bringing in wine for the French, they were outraged. It, would had, it had to be carefully explained by command that wine was just as much a staple of French life as milk was to Americans. A significant PR victory for the Americans and a classic story of the Berlin airlift was the story of Lieutenant Gail Halverson, or the Berlin Candy Bomber. On arriving at Tempelhof, he noticed that kids behind the fences watching the planes take off and land. These children were, however, very different than children he had ran to in other parts of the Europe. They didn't ask for candy or gum like most children did when they saw GIs. He decided to approach the kids and gave them two sticks of gum he had in his pocket and promised the children he would drop them more from his airplane. The next day, Halverson dropped the children candy and neckerchiefs made into parachutes. The day after, when he flew back, he saw more children waiting for the candy bomber and waving to him from the fences. So he started to drop candy in the days and weeks to follow. The base started to receive mail for a Mr. Candy Bomber and Uncle Wiggly Wings. Eventually, command started to realize that something strange was going on. Halverson was ordered to report to his squadron commander, and he expected to be dressed down or reprimanded. Instead, his commander loved it and told Halverson how he was on front-page news all over West Germany. He told Halverson to continue the drops. Soon, other pilots joined in the candy drops, and it was officially named Operation Little Vittles. In the mail, he started to receive boxes from the states with neckerchiefs and candy to drop to the children. At one point, so many children surrounded the airport, it became a hazard. Children in the East German sector wrote Halverson asking that he drop candy to them, and he made several missions dropping candy to children in East Berlin before Soviet officials formally protested the flights. Eventually, Halverson even had a German secretary assigned to him to answer all of his fan mail. Halverson has received numerous awards for his role in Operation Little Vittles, including the Congressional Gold Medal. However, Little Vittles was not the end of Halverson's military and humanitarian career, but the beginning. Over the next 25 years, Halverson advocated for and performed candy jobs in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Albania, Japan, Guam, and Iraq. It's important to remember, though, that Great Britain also played a critical role in the airlift. From the British perspective, known as Operation Plainfair, the RAF enjoyed a few advantages over the Americans. The weather in the British zones tended to be milder and less foggy, which helped with the flight operations and safety. The British also had a shorter distance to fly as well since many of their bases in northern Germany were closer to Berlin, meaning the British could make more flights a day than the Americans. The British did face two problems, though. One was that they operated far from far more bases than the Americans, which complicated the process. The second, they flew several types of aircraft versus the two types of planes used by the Americans. This made maintenance and repair more difficult. The RAF's shortage of transport aircraft also brought in uh, a number of civilian firms to fill the gap who flew an assortment of decommissioned World War II aircraft. 
The British also called on their dominions for support, and South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand sent pilots, planes, and mechanics to help with the operation. Like the Americans, the British primarily used C-47s, or as the British named them, Dakotas for the airlift. But they were aged, their numbers were few, and carrying capacity limited. Eventually, however, they were supplemented by the four-engine Avro Yorks and Hanley Page Hastings, which could carry eight tons of supplies. Sunderland flying boats operated by the RAF also helped to supply the city flying from the Elbe River and Lake Havel outside of Hamburg. The conditions on the river were dangerous as much rubble, scrap metal, and submarines littered the water. The Sunderlands operated under increasingly difficult conditions until Lake Havel froze over and the planes were withdrawn. But like the Americans, the British too faced maintenance problems with these larger planes. The sheer number of takeoffs and landings strained engines, airframes, tires, brakes, and undercarriages. The French also initially attempted to aid the airlift. The French Air Force committed what limited air tra transport capability that they had to the operation. Most of the Air Force, like stated earlier, was away fighting in French Indochina. The French had three C-47s, one C-54, and one Hanley Page Halifax, in addition to three obsolete JU-52s from the 1930s. The JU-52, which was the primary transport aircraft used by the Germans in World War II, its range, speed, and cargo capacity, one and a half tons, was severely limited in contrast to the other Allied aircraft. Uh, in the end, the French flew 424 missions into Berlin, Berlin, delivering some 800 tons of supplies. Ultimately, however, the French contributed very little. Moreover, the JU-52s, with their slow airspeed, were a danger to themselves and the rest of the aircraft in the air corridors. In the end, it proved more efficient for the Americans to provide the supplies to the French garrison in Berlin than the, for the French to continue to help. Despite their meager supplies, local West German communities also banded together to collect food and supplies to, sent, to be sent to Berlin. The vast majority of Berliners showed their appreciation for the efforts of the Allied airmen in constant small gestures. Berliners were constantly turning up at Tempelhof with flowers that they gave to the airmen. The steady hum of engines overhead that had a few short years before brought death and destruction now promised survival and freedom from Soviet oppression. Even as the airlift succeeded, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Air Force were worried about the amount of aircraft assigned to the mission and the amount of resources they were eating up. But General Clay, who had become to believe in the success of the airlift, and President Truman were unshakable in their support of the mission. Truman made sure that the necessary aircraft and resources were made available to LeMay and Clay to continue the airlift or the complaints of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Air Force brass. Despite the overall success of the airlift, there were some tragedies. In one of the worst, a C-54 missed the runway and in bad weather conditions, crashing and burning. A second C-54 attempted to avoid the crash, blowing out its tires, when a third attempting to miss the crash site belly landed on an auxiliary airfield. In all, some 31 U.S. Air Force pilots died during the airlift. The British had lost 18 men, one Australian and one South African pilot, and 13 German civilians had died. However, their sacrifice should be viewed in contrast to the hundreds of thousands of Germans who might have died if the city had starved. I want to take a moment here for a quick break, and thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends or spread the word about us on Facebook or Twitter, or take a moment to visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. That's one word. As you can imagine, me and my colleague invest a lot of our personal time and resources in bringing you the show, buying books, 
recording equipment, hosting the podcast, and the website all adds up. So again, if you enjoy the show, please help support us through the Patreon on the website so that we can keep the show coming to you. Even a small donation can go a long way. Additionally, when you visit the website, be sure to fill out our survey so that we can help bring you a better show. Now back to the episode. Meanwhile, the Allies did try to diplomatically bring the blockade to an end. At first, they approached the Soviet foreign minister, Molotov. But at first, he had, they had to wait for him to return from summer vacation. When he did return, they made very little progress and were stonewalled. They then tried to speak with Stalin directly, but again, they had very little luck in having him end the blockade as the Allies were not willing to change their stance on the German occupation. If anything, pleading with Stalin was probably a mistake as he perceived it as a sign of weakness and an indication that his plan was working. By this time, the Soviets also realized that their blockade of the city wasn't as ironclad as they had hoped it was. The Berlin black market was helping to supply West Berlin with many of the goods people needed to survive smuggled in from the eastern half of the city as many people in the east tried to help their friends and relatives. The East German communists and Soviets attempted to shut down the black market as a massive raid was carried out by Soviet troops and East German police at the Potsdam Plaza, uh, one of the main black markets. The Berliners fought back, though, throwing stones at the police and soldiers who were responded by firing into the crowd, killing six civilians. This only made the situation worse, though, as the crowds rushed and turned over a Soviet vehicle. British and American units raced to the scene as the square ran adjoined the British and American sectors. This led to an intense standoff as Allied and Soviet troops squared off against each other in the square. By 10 p.m., though, both sides had backed down and the black market was reopened for business. The next day, the Soviets and East German police returned to the plaza and seized four American MPs by gunpoint and refused to release them. The day after that, they returned again to raid the square, but they found the British and Americans reinforced and heavily armed there. When the Soviet commander offered to work together to clear the square, the Americans refused and hinted that if the Soviets tried, there would be a fight. The Soviets backed down and retreated from the square. As the situation escalated, the United States eventually tried to move the issue of the blockade to the new United Nations Security Council. The matter was brought to debate despite the objections of the Soviet Union. The debate was one-sided as the Soviets refused to take part in the proceedings. Argentina tried to introduce a resolution to end the blockade and restart negotiations between the Western powers and the Soviets, but the Soviet Union exercised their veto power and had the resolution killed. The Americans, therefore, with little hope of a diplomatic solution and unwilling to back down, prepared for a long-term airlift lasting into 1952, having additional funds set aside for the necessary pilots, resources, and planes to continue the mission. By May 1949, Stalin, however, realized his gamble had failed. At midnight on May the 12th, the lights went back on, the rails were reopened, and the roads' blocks were lifted. The blockade had started hurting the Soviets as much as it was damaging the West. The East German sector and the East Berlin were dependent on industries located in West Berlin. What limited trade there was had broken down between the East and West Germany. The industries in East Germany were especially dependent on coal from West Germany. Seemingly, the Soviets either misunderstood how dependent their zone of Germany was on the West or misjudged the resolve of the West. At one point, Colonel Hawley, learning that the gas main to General Soklowski's house ran through the western sector, turned off his heat in the middle of winter. When Solowski and had his furniture moved out of the house, the trucks were confiscated by the Americans once they tried to drive through a part of the western Berlin. 
With the formation of the Federal Republic of Germany in the West in September 1949, the Soviets and German communists in the East were compelled to make a communist state in the East. Thus, the German Democratic Republic was formed in October 1949 with East Berlin as its capital. The economy in East Germany faltered. Workers remained impoverished and wages fell until the people launched an uprising in 1953, which we'll be looking at in another episode. Meanwhile, in West Berlin, even with the reduced population, the city had 300,000 unemployed and struggled as the new West German capital was moved to Bonn with all of its government offices and positions. However, as Marshall Plan aid poured in, West Germany rebuilt itself. West Berlin enjoyed rapid growth as the city rebuilt itself. By 1952, the unemployment rate had fallen to 25,000 in the western half of the city. The airlift had lasted 324 days, delivering some 13,000 tons of supplies daily at its height, saving the city of Berlin while achieving a political victory without starting World War III. The Allies had achieved the impossible. With very little political or military power, they had achieved a stunning political victory. Stalin and the Soviets had suffered a political blow. The Berlin blockade completely backfired. Instead of stomping the new West German mark and the creation of West Germany, it sped up the process. Moreover, the whole ordeal had made the Soviets look weak. They were powerless to stop the creation of West Germany, stop the Marshall Plan, or the creation of NATO. They couldn't even remove the small Allied garrison from Berlin despite their huge conventional forces in Eastern Europe. Even worse, the Soviets had to sign an agreement in 1949 formally recognizing the Allied presence and right to be there. Moreover, the Americans had achieved a huge level of support from the German people and the people of Berlin, who no longer saw the Americans as an enemy occupiers but allies and saviors. This is a counterfactual point, or what we in the States call Monday morning quarterbacking, but the blockade might have worked if the Soviets would have been more prepared for the Allied counter-blockade, and more importantly, they should have attempted to blockade all at once versus an escalated approach. By the Soviets slowly ratcheting up the pressure, they lost the element of surprise. They gave the Americans time and foresight into future Soviet moves. Thus, the Americans could stockpile supplies and prepare for a blockade. In the words of Sun Tzu, quote, let your plans be dark and impenetrable as night, and when you move, fall like a thunderbolt, close quote. In summation, the Berlin blockade became an American public relations victory. The Allies prov- proved their resolve in the face of the communists and their ability to save an entire city. They looked like heroes to the German people and the citizens of Berlin, and the Soviets came out internationally looking like villains. More importantly, the Berlin blockade had destroyed what little goodwill was left between the Allies and the Soviets. After the end of the blockade, the Soviets asked to reestablish the Kommandatura to administer Berlin and the Allied Control Council and the occupation of Germany, but the Americans refused. Stalin had accidentally passed a virtual Rubicon, and there was no going back. The United States and Great Britain now saw the Soviets as an aggressive power looking not, not just secure its position in Eastern Europe, but it is an expansive force threatening the Allied position in Central Europe. The Berlin blockade also helped to stoke the arms race buildup and the creation of NATO in the West as well, which we can learn more about in Episode 8, America Rearms. I will be having a separate episode about the creation of NATO later. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. Currently, I'm sure as many of you are aware, it's a presidential election year here in the United States, and elections are important. So the next episode on August the 15th, we'll be, we'll be looking back at the 1948 presidential election between Truman and Dewey.
In all, I plan to be examining six presidential elections, 1948, 1960, 1964, 1968, 1976, and 1980 in this series. Uh, These elections had a major impact on the direction of the Cold War. So join us in our next episode where we'll be taking a dive into American politics and the politicians that shaped America's Cold War perspective. So make sure you catch our next episode on August the 15th. And don't forget to tell your friends about us and to check us out at our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com to donate and to fill out our survey so we can keep bringing you more great episodes. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Right now at Sprint, you can lease the Samsung Galaxy S9 for just $5 a month with a Sprint Flex lease. Galaxy S9 is an incredible phone. It takes super slow-mo video and instantly translates foreign language signs, menus, maps, and more. Lease your Galaxy S9 for just $5 a month today. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $5 per month after $28 per month credit. Apply within two bills. If you cancel early, remaining balance due. Requires new line and 18-month lease. Excludes tax. Subject to credit. $30 activation fee and restrictions apply. 